0: Well, did you have a good 4th of July? Did you have a good time? Uh, it's a remarkable um, holiday, and I was thinking about this. You know, I was born in Malaysia. I became a U.S. citizen just a couple of years ago, two and a half, maybe three years ago. And uh, But the 4th of July has always been special for me. When we first came to America as a, as a little, well, I was a little boy, my parents, of course, were uh, parents and uh, I was t- I was ten, and uh, my sister was thirteen, and, and we moved to Portland, Oregon, from Malaysia, and we lived there for three years, and then moved back to Malaysia, and I was so struck by the beauty of the American story and, and the amazing qualities of, of the men and women that have you know, been throughout America's history, that I, even when we moved back to Malaysia, I would, I would get up every morning and I played the trumpet. Yes, here we go, a little known secret. And I would play the Star Spangled Banner on the trumpet like every morning. It, this went on for a few weeks. I'm surprised the neighbors didn't say anything. But, you know, this, this week, once again, just because of our kids and all of that, we've been thinking a little bit about the remarkable men and women that have um, come from this place, from this country. A couple of weeks ago when we were on our road trip, uh, we tried, at least on the way out there, we weren't as successful doing audiobooks on the way back, because, you know, something about a road trip, on your way home, you're like, okay, put in another movie, you know, but on the way out there, you're trying very hard to, you know, to not do the movie thing, and so we we had the CD set called Your Story Hour, you know, we got it from the library, and we're listening to these stories about Theodore Roosevelt and th- Thomas Jefferson, and so it's been a couple of weeks now where we've been, you know, you know, with our children talking about some of these uh, great men and women of America, and I, I've been... Um, impressed again by what we would call maybe the American spirit, this idea of uh, ingenuity, of of creativity, of of grit and determination, of of persistence and perseverance, and a a country that that by design kind of makes that possible, you know, that encourages that. Um, And then I was thinking about how sometimes these virtues over time get corrupted. And that any, any, uh, any good virtue either has a dark side to it or because just as it's passed down um, sort of gets cheapened. And, uh, and I was thinking about how maybe the spirit of, of creativity or ingenuity or, or persistence and all of that somehow gets corrupted into this uh, dissatisfaction with the ordinary. Now, in order to create something new and and start something new, there must be a certain kind of dissatisfaction with the status quo, right? There's got to be something in you that says, hey, this isn't right or this isn't good enough and so therefore, let's create this. But it's one thing when you're talking about innovations or inventions that are for the good of people and it's another thing when you're talking about a new flavor of Twinkie. Or, or a new video game, or a new this, or a new that. And so somewhere along the way, what begins from this good impulse of saying, hey, let's make this better, all of a sudden becomes, hey, entertain me. Hey, create something new, because if it's just ordinary, then it's not good enough. And so I think somewhere along, along the way, we've, we've, capt- we've um, maybe caught the sense that um, if it's just normal, then it's not okay. It's got to be better than normal. It's got to be special. And so whether you watch a car commercial or whether you watch a bank commercial, whatever it is, whatever product we're being sold, the line always goes something like this. Hey, this is better than just that. And so normal life is always depicted as this boring kind of blah, you know, oh, who wants a slow car? Who wants a car that, that doesn't have this drive? No, we want the mo, the strongest truck with the, fastest, you know, whatever, and the greatest torque, and I don't even know what torque means, and you know, we need, we need all of this stuff because I don't want to be normal, I want to stand out, and so, the, you know, everything, the, the, the commercials of the cars are zooming by and the people that drive them are beautiful and handsome and successful, and it, it, it grabs this part of us that says, yeah, I don't want to be ordinary, I want to stand out. And maybe this kind of, you see this, parents, maybe with your children, uh, with our kids too, one of the worst things, one of the things that kind of gets under our skin just a little bit is when one of our children says, I'm bored. And there's nothing like the summer to provoke children, to to incite your children to say, I'm bored. And Holly and I are always like, well, read a book or play, a game." and most of the time they're pretty good, you know, doing stuff, but every once in a while there's this, I'm bored, and and I wonder sometimes if if boredom is the result of being uncomfortable with the ordinary. That boredom is this thing in us that happens as a result of our discomfort, our being uncomfortable with the ordinary. Because the ordinary can't be good enough. There's got to be something beyond it, something better than it. And so, so when we find ourselves stuck in the ordinary, we find ourselves being frustrated in boredom. And because we're uncomfortable with the ordinary, we start to get this frustration of boredom. And oftentimes what we do is we try to break out of the ordinary either by looking for a new high or looking for a new thrill. Okay, you know what? Maybe we need to do this or maybe we need to do that or maybe we need to go here or maybe I need to buy something new, you know? Uh, Maybe we just need to go. Sometimes without even thinking about it, this is why we find ourselves at the mall, you know? Did you need anything? No, I just needed something new. Or we, maybe we create more crises, you know, subconsciously. We say, okay, well, I, this, this can't be good enough. Who, who can I pick a fight with today? What rant can I do on Facebook that will start a debate that will take over my whole Saturday? Or, that's, not, that's just me? Okay. <laughs> the Christian version of this is something like this. We say, well, listen, following Jesus shouldn't be ordinary. Following Jesus should be exciting. And so the Christian version of this is to kind of say, all right, listen, everybody, you're following Jesus. The Holy Spirit is here with us. And so the Christian life ought to be full of excitement. Translation, the Christian life needs to have miracles every day, every second, every moment. And listen, I want, I don't want to go to a church that just gets together on a Sunday. Have you heard that? People say this very often, I don't want to just come and go to church, I want to be at church where there's like gold dust from the sky or where like people are are being, there's miracles, I just, I, I want to know that God is working and so we constantly maybe look for these extraordinary moments because we're convinced that surely the ordinary can't be good. Surely the ordinary can't be where God is. And so I need to find, even if I need to manufacture it, I've got to have this experience of something extraordinary. Take me to the church that's exciting. Take me to the church that's doing some new things. Take me to the place where I go in and there's, there's like a, wow, I don't know, it's just the lights, wow. We, clearly we have not tried to wow you here. And sometimes we, we're so, we're so um, intent on finding that thing that is exciting that we confuse the stimulating, exciting setting for the very presence of God himself. And so the bigger the crowd, the brighter the lights, the louder the music, the, the, the more the preacher screams, then we say, oh, God is moving! How do you know? Because. And then you go to your church and they they sing the doxology and they take communion and they say the creed and you're thinking, oh, this is boring. I wonder if a certain kind of boredom is our spirit detoxing from our addiction to adrenaline. I wonder if a certain kind of boredom is the withdrawal systems of a culture that's taught us to always live on an adrenaline high. I need something new. I need something exciting. What's Glenn going to talk about today? Oh, it's going to disappoint you. <laughs> you know, even if you were to plot out the miracles in the Bible, they don't happen with all this frequency. If you were to say, well, hey, listen... The people of Israel, they, they had miracles in the desert. I mean, they had manna falling from heaven. And it was like, you know, cloudy with a chance of meatballs before there was cloudy with a chance of meatballs, you know. Manna from heaven, water from a rock. It was amazing. And you say, yeah, but that was in the wilderness. What happened when they got into the promised land? What did they have to do if they wanted to eat? Work? Plant gardens? Raise livestock? Dig wells? Gross. What happened to God? What happened to the dramatic? You say, well, Glenn, okay, well, that's Old Testament, Glenn. Listen, in the book of Acts, this is my favorite. charismatics love it. In the book of Acts, there were healings all the time. Do you know, the book of Acts happens in about five different cities over the course of about 30 years. Plot out those miracles over 30 years in five different cities. All of a sudden, the averages go way down. Now you're talking about an exceptional miracle once every, what, I don't know, 10 years or so, five years, yeah. then you're saying, well, that's kind of like our life. So you mean they didn't just wake up every day and clear out the hospitals and, you know, all this stuff and this bim, bam, boom, just whoosh, zaps? I thought the Christian life was exciting. The church calendar is broken up into two halves of the year. There is the part of the church calendar that is called or can be called extraordinary time. And it begins in Advent. Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas. And and, and it begins with Advent because you start to long and you start to anticipate and you start to get ready for Christmas and you start to say, okay, listen, this is the moment where we're going to reenact the story and we're going to remember how God has come to be with us. And so Advent really is a season that's designed to be of preparation and repentance. But the shopping malls wouldn't tell you that. And then Christmas is this time that lasts 12 days from December 25th into January, January 5th, and where where you say, okay, he's here, God is with us, Emmanuel. And then you go into Epiphany from January 6th on, where you start to say, God, give us a picture that you didn't just come as a little itty-bitty baby Jesus, but you came as the king Give us that epiphany. And then after that epiphany, you move into the season of Lent where you're saying, okay, this 40-day fast period where I'm lowering myself, where I'm preparing myself, and you journey toward the cross, and you have Holy Week and Good Friday and Holy Saturday, and then Easter. Oh, Easter, what a party Easter is. And so Lent was six weeks long, but Easter is seven weeks long because the feast is greater than the fast. Somebody say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then after Easter, you get into Pentecost, and it's the season of where we think of the Holy Spirit moving in us and being on his church. And you're like, this is awesome. I love the season of Pentecost. And then you go into this five-month stretch, depending on where it falls, maybe six-month stretch, called ordinary time. (laughs) And that's where we are right now, ordinary time. Like, ordinary time. Couldn't they have done something better? Where were the marketing people when the church council had this meeting? <laughs> the people will never go for ordinary time. You can't make banners about ordinary time. You can't launch a campaign about ordinary time. There's no Twitter hashtag you can use for ordinary time. We, well, what do we do? Several different sources say that this, this phrase, ordinary time, comes from the idea of Oh, the word, the Latin ordinal, which means just to count. See, sometimes you mark time by seasons of hope and anticipation. Wow, I'm waiting for it. He's coming. Sometimes you mark time by these seasons of longing and hope and expectation. And other times you just mark it by counting. Ordinal. One Sunday. Two Sundays. Three Sundays. Four Sundays. Five Sundays you ever feel like life is like that sometimes? Sometimes in life you're marking time by the exciting events. I've done a few weddings this summer, you know, so for, for anyone who's preparing for their wedding that you're marking time by that. How many days? Six days and four hours. But who's counting, you know? Other times you just mark time by just another day. Well, it's just another day, another Sunday. How's it going? Another day. And you wonder, is God in those moments, or is God only in the extraordinary moments? Genesis 28, verse 16 and 17. This is Jacob. And Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. If you're the underlining type or the circling type, you could circle all the ises in those two verses. Surely the Lord is in this place. How awesome is this place. Surely this is the gate of heaven. You see, <laughs> for the Jewish picture of God, God was always near. God was always right there. When you read the Psalms and you think about God inhabiting his creation, God being here, the one who's feeding you. I was reading Psalm 36 last night, and it talks about God being the one who provides for all of creation, and they feast from his hand. The Jewish image of God is this imagination of God being the one tending to his world, God being right here in it. But do you know, there's also this, this... connection to this view of heaven that's very different than ours. See, in the Old Testament, when you talk about heaven, the Jewish view of heaven is not as a faraway place, but an overlapping space. Let me say this again. The Jewish view of heaven is not as a faraway place, the way we think of it. Oh, I've, I've died and I'm going away to heaven, which is somewhere next to Pluto, which is no longer a planet. <laughs> no, it's not a faraway place, but, a se- but an overlapping space. That's, that was their belief about heaven. It's this God's sphere that overlaps human sphere. And not only that, but they believed there were certain hot spots of where all of a sudden it didn't just overlap, but it interlocked. And there were these hot spots where all of a sudden the Wi-Fi signal was really strong. And heaven and earth were like, And so when Jacob says, This is the gate of heaven, he's saying, I found a hot spot. This is it. This is one of these portal places. This is one of those thin places, other writers have called it. Later on in Jewish theology, the temple would become the hottest of hot spots. It was The temple was the place where heaven and earth met. The temple was the place where God's presence, where God's glory would be revealed. The temple was this place where it all came together. And so Jacob is saying, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was un." Aware. Isn't it interesting that he wakes up from his dream and he doesn't say, I think God was was just here? See, he's not talking about visitation language. This isn't visitation language, like I think God came to visit from a faraway planet. But he's saying, I think God has been all around me, is all around me, and I just wasn't aware of it. Imagine the difference of that. And think about what a curious statement that is. I mean, what if I said to you, hey church, this morning. I just want you to know that right here in the room right now is the Empire State Building. You'd be like, somebody call the loony police, please. Guys, I'm not joking. Right in this room is Pike's Peak. You're like, no, it's not. It's not. You're like, no, it's here. It's right here. You're like, no, it's not. I mean, how does the God, Yahweh, the God who made... Heavens and the earth. Isaiah's image of God being the one who scooped up the oceans, the God who calls out the stars to march by name, the God who tells the oceans in Job, thus far and no more, the God who does all of these things. How is that big, gigantic God all of a sudden in a place and we don't know it? Isn't that maybe one of the greatest mysteries? That all of us, that we can say God is there, and though we are unaware. Look at this painting for a minute. This is a painting called Jacob's Dream by Giuseppe Rivera, a Spanish painter in the 1600s. I was looking at this last night, and one of the art historians on the interwebs where I found this was talking about just the drab countryside. Those of you who are painters, you look, look at that art scene. There's nothing inspiring about that scene. You wouldn't see, look at that half-dead tree and dark clouds and gray earth, and you wouldn't say, oh, stop, stop, got to get my canvas out, got to paint that. This isn't one of those scenes. We wouldn't drive by it and Instagram it. Speak our language now. Good. It's, it's drab countryside, which is kind of where Luz, Luz was like. And here's Jacob, and you see all of a sudden, if you look carefully, there's this little beam of light that's shining down in his face. And if you look even more closely, you can kind of make out the wispy angels in a wispy staircase, and you're like, well, that's really hard to see. Right. That's, I think, the artist's point. That it requires quite a bit of imagination to, to look beyond this and to look through this and to say, is God god Is God here? Is God here? Could you imagine what this would be like? Imagine coming home from work, talking to your friends or talking to your spouse, and hey, how was your day? It was pretty good. How was your day? Well, I think the Lord was at my cubicle today. (laughs) What? I think the Lord was at my Starbucks today. (laughs) I'm sorry? I think the Lord was with me in the kitchen today. I don't know. I wasn't really aware of it. I mean, I didn't have this like dramatic moment. I didn't break down and start weeping. I didn't have an encounter per se, but, but I think the Lord was in this place and I just didn't know it. I mean, imagine what that would be like if every day you came home and you say, Lord, what a day. Gosh, that was hard. But Lord, you were in those places today. God, you were there when my child was crying. You were there when, and it's probably mine. Oh, no, it's not. Okay, not this time. Usually it is. So so please, no, no, no worries there, Brian. You were there, Lord, when the stack of dishes kept getting higher. You were there when I was pulling out my hair in that conversation with a friend. You were there when I got that text. You were there when my inbox was flooded in the morning. You were there. All of a sudden you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, God, surely you are in this place and that place and this place and that place, though I am unaware. How's work going? Work's okay. I think the Lord is in that place, though I'm unaware of it. Imagine that. Sometimes I think part of why it's difficult to, to think about our vocation or our jobs or our work as holy, is because we forget that God is in those places. And so we sort of think, well, my job is just my job, but I can't wait to get to a different place. Instead of saying, surely God was in this place. Maybe, maybe instead of at the end of the day, you say it every morning, you wake up and you say, okay, God, Woo, it's Monday. Surely the Lord is in this place, though I am unaware What's my to-do list today? What's my commute like today? What's my task list like today? (sighs) Surely the Lord is in this place, though I am unaware of it. Could you imagine saying that? So what do we do? What do we do in ordinary time? What do we do in ordinary time, not just the season of ordinary time, but, but in the ordinary places, the ordinary moments of our lives? How do we, what do we do? I think one of the things we do in ordinary time is to practice being present, practice being fully there, practice fully attending to the moments that we're in. I mean, after all, if we, if we believe that God is present, then what does it say if we are not, <laughs> right? Right? If I believe that God is present, even though I'm not aware, God is present. If I believe that, then surely, what about me being present? What about my being fully there? You say, well, that's hard. It's hard to kind of give yourself fully to these moments. And I'll say to you, true confessions right now, I'm awful at being fully present in different moments. Awful at it. I mean, like, I always am trying to multitask and do, like, three or four things at the same time, and about half of them are really important. Anybody? Holly told me the other day, she's like, yeah, like, my last image of you before you fall asleep is this, and my first image of you when you wake up in the morning is like this, <laughs> And she wasn't scolding me, but, but it's true. Just one more check of the, you know, the timeline or the inbox or and it's difficult, isn't it, to give ourselves fully into these moments, even though we think, yeah, I know God is here, but I don't know if I want to be fully here. <laughs> okay, preacher boy, God may be present, but I don't know if I want to be. What do we do? Jacob, in this text, you know, he, he has this realization that all of a sudden this ordinary place is really a holy place. And so Jacob then begins to, d- to do some things that are very ritual-like. He sets up an altar, he pours oil, he promises a tenth. These are all rituals that become part of their customs of showing honor and worship. Now, rituals kind of have a bad connotation to us. In fact, many people, when they, even when they talk about church, they say, well, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want my church attendance, I don't want what I do in church, I just don't want to just go through the rituals. I mean, I don't, I don't like rituals. But every parent knows that there's something about us as human beings that embraces rituals. And what I mean by parents knowing this early on is remember when your baby first starts like sleeping or sleeping close to through the night? You're like, okay, okay, we needed that pink blanket and we needed this rocking chair and we needed this lamp on, but not to the second setting, just the first setting, and you need to rock, but not too fast and you, because, you know, she's, this is the way it... Ca-. And you work through these rituals because you think... My baby's getting used to these rituals or, you know, whatever, and I don't want to mess it up, but it's true. you're school teachers, you've worked with children, you know that even when they're young, as you get them into a schedule and you get them into a rhythm, all of a sudden, they know what to expect. And if you're a teacher that's ever said, oh, let's just mess with the schedule today, how class has gone after that. <laughs> There's something early on in us, maybe it is part of the way we're wired, that that something about habits and practices and rituals do form us, do shape us. They actually aim our loves. There's a whole lot of work that's, that's, that's being written about in kind of the, the, the philosophical realm and in the cognitive psychology realm that's, that's reinforcing this. You think about athletes. The last thing you want a golfer or a, or a baseball player, whatever to do when they come to their moment to hit is to be thinking about how to hit, right? The last thing you want. I've been watching Wimbledon. I'm rooting for Andy Murray. I hope he's pulling it off against Djokovic as I speak. But the last thing Andy needs to do is start thinking about his backhand or his forehand or right? he doesn't need to start. Why? Because The reason he puts in hours after hours and hours after hours of doing this is so it becomes second nature. There's something about a practice or a ritual that you do and all of a sudden it trains you and it becomes natural and then you do it and in the heat of the moment, it comes out. We'll say much more about that, but for today, the only thing I want to say about this is the rituals that train our heart to be attentive to the Lord. The rituals that turn our heart toward the Lord spiritual practices maybe but you know for any of you who have heard this if you've been in church you hear about spiritual disciplines I think spiritual disciplines is a not the greatest term for it because you know what that does is it makes it sound like it's something that we do through our discipline to be spiritual right and whether or not that's intended that's what we hear Oh, spiritual disciplines, yes, yes. Those things that I do by my own discipline to show how spiritual I am. And so, when we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount series next week, we'll talk about fasting and giving and pre- all of these things that, that are specific practices that Jesus is talking about. But see, I don't, I don't think that the way to think of them is as disciplines, rather as habitations of the spirit. One, I love this phrase that one writer used. He said the spiritual disciplines are habitations of the spirit. There are things that the spirit in himself indwells. And so when we engage in these practices, what we're really saying is I'm responding to, an up, to a downward invitation from God pulling me into his realm." That's very different than saying, okay, I'm going to, I've got a plan of action, I'm disciplined, I'm going to fast, I'm going to do this, and this is going to be my upward movement toward God. Right? Isn't that how we tend to think of spiritual disciplines? If I fast, uh, what are you doing right now? I'm on a fast. Why? Because I really want to seek God. And so I'm fasting as my way, my upward movement toward God. But that's, that's not the way to think of it, I think. I think the, a better way to think of it is, This is God's downward movement towards us. It's practices that when we all of a sudden join in, we find that God is there with us. You see, God is always the initiator. God is always the one who says, I'm coming down towards you. And and when we respond to his invitations, we find all of a sudden, these hot spots in the middle of ordinary places. You think of for you, what that looks like. Maybe for some of you, you get in your car on your way to work, you put in a CD or something, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, thank you, Lord, you are in this place. I've been unaware, but, but you are in this place right now. Or you stop, maybe it's, you know, you open your Bible, you got your morning cup of coffee or tea, and you're right there, and you, start, oh, and you read your psalm of the day, or you read a passage, and all of a sudden you're saying, oh, God, you're in this place. You realize it. But I think there are, (laughs) though all of those practices, the individual ones, are like the outer rim of a wheel, and I think at the hub is this communal practice that we do together as the church. See, if, if spiritual disciplines are kind of taken on their own, then they're just, again, spiritual disciplines, things that I do, solo exercises to show how spiritual I am. Rather than saying, ah, those are the overflows of this one great practice, this one great habit that the people of God have always done. You know what that is? We gather. We gather around the Word and we gather around the table. We come together and we sing. What do you do in ordinary time? You do ordinary practices that once again turn our hearts to God. And so we come on Sunday mornings. We come well, I don't feel like going to church today. I would rather encounter God hiking or camping. But you know what happens when you gather with the people of God is all of a sudden you come and you say, well, I, I don't really feel like this, but hey, Elliot, how are you doing? Wow, okay, hey, hi, hey, what are you all doing here? We all came to gather around the word and to gather around the table. All of a sudden, you open your mouth and you begin to sing, and you open your mouth and you begin to pray, and you open your mouth and you begin to take in the bread and the cup, and all of a sudden you say, surely the Lord is in this place. Surely the Lord was in this place. There's something about the communal ritual practice that we do that begins to form us, shape us, aim our love, aim our heart toward God again. To make us aware. The reason we have such confidence about this when we come and we gather around the table like we're about to do in a few moments is because it's the table that reminds us of the greatest moment in our history. When God became Man, how oh, we breeze through this every year. Oh, yeah, yeah, God, Jesus came down from heaven to earth. Right, cool. Yeah, for the Eastern Orthodox Church, creation, incarnation, new creation, that's the whole way they tell their story, the story of salvation. Because if Jesus did not take on flesh, then nothing else about the story means anything. If Jesus didn't really actually take on skin and bone and come into our world and really live and really inhabit, if God did not come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves, if Jesus did not really assume in our nature and take on himself the ordinary places in ordinary moments, then there is no hope of actual redemption, but Jesus did. And our gospel reading this morning reminds us one of the greatest miracles of our faith the miracle and the mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus came where you and I are. Jesus took it on. First 30 years of Jesus' life, you have like what, two stories, maybe one? Like Jesus lived through ordinary times. Jesus reminds us that even when we are inattentive to God, God is attentive to you. The incarnation says to us that even when we can't be present to God, he came to be present with us. The incarnation reminds us that when we could not reach upward toward God, when we could not do enough, try enough, be more aware enough, what be good enough, make the heavens open enough, when we couldn't do any of these things, God came to dwell with the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. God came with us to be with us. Now think of that. Think of how powerful that is. Just stop for a moment, even right here. Think of the, the longing, the ache, maybe even in our own hearts to say, God, am I alone in this world? Maybe, maybe the real reason I, 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 I kind of numb the pain with, with busyness and excitement is because I don't want to feel alone in this world. And the incarnation says, you're not, and you never have been. Think of Jacob, scared and afraid, going back to his father's house, not sure what's going to happen to him. And all of a sudden, he has this dream, and God's saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. I've never left you. This looks like drab country. This looks like wasteland. This looks like dry places, but the Lord is in this the Lord is in this place. But God, you don't understand. I'm between jobs. I don't know my purpose. I don't have a passion anymore. I was told to follow my dreams. I don't even have dreams anymore. I'm not sure how purpose-driven I can even be at this moment. And I don't have this and I don't have that. And this is just ordinary and my job. I just work a normal job and I just have normal friends and we're not changing the world and we're not doing this. And we're not... Shh. Surely the Lord is in this. Surely the Lord is in this place. There's nothing more ordinary than bread and a cup. Juice, in our case. Wine, historically. There's nothing more ordinary than that. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, talked about the mystery of what happens at the table, and he linked it to the Incarnation. So it's just as surely as we believe that god the divine and the human mingle together in the incarnation just as in that way so we believe something mysterious happens here when we take in the bread and the cup see the ancient church didn't get so hung up on explaining how it happened Later on, the medieval church would, not so you get the transubstantiation thing, and you, oh, that's kind of weird, that's too Catholic, whatever. And the reformers kind of say, no, we're not going to say that, and Luther said, okay, maybe it's, maybe it's the presence of Christ is on, with, among, and, and Calvin says, no, maybe it's a spiritual presence. But all of the reformers, except for one, emphasized that there was something special that happens here at the table, something of the real presence of Christ. In fact, John Wesley The great revivalist, you might have thought he would have just, John Wesley would have made it all private and individual. He didn't. Wesley even talked about a real presence of Christ and said it's our duty as Christians to come to the table as often as possible. Why? (laughs) Because here is where just a piece of bread and just a cup of juice, all of a sudden, something happens and we realize that God has always met us in the ordinary moments. That God always meets us in the ordinary places. And it's at the Lord's table that we realize that all of life can become holy. It's at the Lord's table that we realize there is a sacrament of living itself. You may think this is some like weird kind of sacrament of living. You know who that phrase That's A. W. Tozer. The Pietist. Again, not someone you would expect to talk about this, but this notion that all of life and every moment can become holy, can become sacred. That ordinary places become holy places because the Lord is in this place. Why? Because of Jesus. See, Jacob, Jacob made Bethel... You know, he thought Bethel maybe was this special place. Bethel would become another place of visitation for Jacob, but then later on, Bethel became a place of idolatry. Did you know that? Later in the northern kingdom, when the kingdom split, Bethel becomes this place of idol worship. Because sometimes the place of encounter can become the place of idolatry when you start seeking encounters with God instead of the God of the encounters. And then all of a sudden you say, well, I just need another encounter. Take me to the next conference, please. I need another encounter. Or maybe you need the miracle of Jacob's phrase. The Lord is in this place. Jesus is the hottest spots of all hot spots. Jesus called himself the new temple. He said, I am the place where heaven and earth meet. Not anymore a physical place. I'm that place. And so if you are in Christ, you become the place. You collectively, the church. So here we are, Sunday morning, gathered as the people of God. In Christ, who is the great place where heaven and earth meet. We ourselves become this temple.